Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 45. And this week we're going to be working on the book of John. We're going to be covering John chapter 1 through John chapter 15. Now, as we take a look at the Gospel of John, here are a few things to consider. First, John is not a synoptic gospel. Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is different. In fact, more than 90% different than all the other Gospels. Second, the book of John was written much later than the other three Gospels, roughly 30 years later. Third, John's Gospel was written to the entire world to demonstrate that Jesus was the Son of God. Therefore, this Gospel is the most theological, stressing the deity of Christ much more than all the others. Fourth, John's gospel focuses more on what Jesus said and what he taught more than what he did. Fifth, the gospel of John is likely to be the first book that a new believer should read, namely because it shows us who Jesus is, the Son of God that died for the sins of the world. Sixth, John's gospel is extremely helpful in establishing a chronology of the ministry of Christ because of his notations of various feast days. Certain feasts occurred at certain times, and therefore, this is extremely helpful if you ever wanted to put together a chronology of the life of Christ. However, others have already done a fantastic job at this. I would highly recommend um, Harold Honer's book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's a little older, 1976, but it's still a classic in its field. All right, as we begin the book of John, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are termed the prologue to the book. However, don't let the word prologue fool you because these 18 verses have a poetic ring to them, and they form some of the most complex theological statements in all the scriptures. An entire seminary course could easily be taught on these 18 verses alone, so to say that they are important is an understatement. John begins his book by communicating three essential truths about Christ. First, he is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Second, Christ is distinct from God. The Word was with God. And third, Christ is identical in essence with God. The Word was God. John stated that Christ is the creator of all things, and that alone is a profound statement of his deity. But while Jesus has always been and will always be, there was a point in time when he became man and took on flesh, according to verse 14. And when Jesus added humanity to deity, he became what we call and know him as the God-man. Now, from chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, we find that John leaves out details about Christ's birth and childhood and goes right into the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. John the Baptist made a big impact on the nation of Israel, so much so that he was questioned by the religious leaders. They wanted to know who he was and what his purposes were. So John made it absolutely clear that he was not the Christ, but simply the pronouncer or announcer of Christ, pointing him out so that all the nation would know. From chapter 1, verse 29 to 51, we find that John baptizes Jesus, and it's Jesus' baptism that identifies him as the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Then John begins pointing his disciples to Jesus, telling them that he is the only one that they should start following. Five disciples begin to follow Jesus at this time, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and of course John, who's writing the account here of the book of John, and he's probably reflecting back on this time in his life with great emotion as Jesus called him to follow him. Now, as we finish up chapter 1, go back and read through the entire chapter. I encourage you to do this and see if you can mark in your Bible. There are 16 different names or titles of Jesus that show up in chapter 1 alone. 
Chapter 2 of John begins the early Galilean ministry of Jesus, and it starts off with Jesus' first miracle, which was the water into wine. John tells us that it was this, this was the first of seven signs that Jesus did. Now, a sign was designed to help bring a person to faith in Christ, but not every sign was a miracle either. But turning the water into wine was a sign because it showed that Jesus had the same power to create that God demonstrated in creation, therefore pointed to Jesus being the creator God who could transform things from one condition to another. And throughout the book of John, he records that Jesus went up to Jerusalem on three separate times for Passover celebrations. This one was the first Passover after Jesus began his public ministry. Jesus witnesses the buying and selling going on in the temple courtyard, which was normal. But by Jesus' day, this practice had morphed into a major business venture for the priests and had replaced spiritual worship in the courtyard during a special Passover season. By the way, according to Jewish traditions, the priests set up tables for the money changers only for about three weeks leading up to the Passover. So it was not a daily practice. Now, Jesus responded to this situation actively and verbally. He claimed that he was God, excuse me, he claimed that God was his father, and then he acted for God in what he did. Now, the last few verses of chapter 2 tell us that Jesus did many other miracles while he was in Jerusalem, and many people believed on him, but that does not mean that they believed that he was the Son of God. Often, people who saw Jesus do miracles proclaimed him a prophet, but they weren't always willing to acknowledge him as deity. In chapter 3, we come to the classic passage of Jesus' night conversations with Nicodemus. You'll notice throughout John that Jesus had many one-on-one conversations with a variety of people, almost 30 different conversations, and each one different in its own right. Now, Nicodemus is an example of a religious leader who responded positively to Jesus, but at the same time, this religious leader did not understand the message that Jesus was giving. It seemed that he viewed acceptance by God was through his heritage or ancestry or his works. He had to realize that he needed spiritual cleansing, something that only God could do and something only God could provide by his spirit. Jesus follows up his conversation with Nicodemus with some of the most powerful verses ever recorded as it relates to Jesus' provision for the sins of the whole world. It is clear that God wants people to be saved and not condemned, but condemnation rests on those who have not trusted Christ as their Savior. Now, the rest of chapter 3 highlights the parallel ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus in the same region of Judea. John the Baptist confessed the superiority of Jesus' ministry, even though they both were doing the same things. Jesus clearly had to be superior because he was sent from God. Did you know that 39 times in the Gospel of John refers to Jesus as being sent from God? It was, no, it, was, it was no doubt a significant point that John needed to emphasize. Verse 34 says it best. It says, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the spirit without limit. All of God's former messengers received a limited measure of God's spirit. But the Spirit came on the Old Testament prophets only for a limited time and for limited purposes. However, God gave His Spirit to Jesus without limit. Everything that the Father has done, revelation and redemption, flows from His love for people through His Son. Moving on to chapter 4, this takes us to another well-known conversation of Jesus. This time it's the woman at the well. As Jesus began the conversation with the woman of Samaria, he was crossing racial, cultural, gender, and spiritual lines. Jesus' instruction to the woman to find her husband was his way of surfacing the sin issue in her life in order to lead her along the path to salvation. Jesus referred to her personal history and the nation's history to lead her to salvation and to give her insights necessary for genuine worship. The disciples were amazed that Jesus had conversed with this woman, but the text clearly highlights the witness this woman had with the Samaritans. They seemed to respond more positively to Jesus, the Samaritans did, than the Jewish people did. 
The same can be said for the next character in chapter 4, the official who had a sick son. He comes to Jesus with the intent that Jesus would return with him to heal his son. But Jesus had another plan. You don't tell Jesus what to do. His ways are always the best ways. And Jesus chose to heal this official son by his words instead of his actions, a plan that led much of the official's household to believe in Jesus. Now, chapter 5 takes us to the city of Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. This is Jesus' second visit to Jerusalem. Conflict with individuals had already been a part of Jesus' ministry, but now we are introduced to conflict with groups, namely the Pharisees. Now, we find that a man who had been ill for 38 years was healed by Jesus, but because it was done on the Sabbath, it drew the antagonism of the Jewish authorities. On multiple occasions, Jesus used his Sabbath activities as a means to make the Jews consider who he was. Now, in this passage, he wanted them to realize that he had the right to work on the Sabbath, as his father did. As a result of this, Jesus clarifies his relationship with the father, namely that he and the father are one. Now read through this section carefully, chapter 5, verses 19 through 29, because it is the most thorough statement of Jesus' unity with the father, his divine commission, his authority, and proof of his messiahship, probably in all the gospels. Now, As Jesus continues speaking, he proceeds to cite five witnesses to his identity. That's in chapter 5, verse 30 to 47. See if you can find all five there in that section. The leaders of Israel thought eternal life was obtained by the study of the law. Jesus claimed, however, that if they really understood the scriptures, they would have trusted in him, since the scriptures were designed to lead a person to the Savior. Now, chapter 6 begins with a very familiar miracle, one that shows up in all the four Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. The miracle was designed to set the stage for the bread of life discourse that fills out the rest of chapter 6. But after Christ had done the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the people concluded that he must be the prophet from whom Moses predicted. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. Jesus had fed the Israelites in a wilderness area, as Moses had also done with bread that came from heaven. Moses had also provided military leadership for the Jews and had liberated them from bondage in Egypt. Therefore, the Jews concluded that Jesus might be able to do the same thing for them. But Jesus realizes their intentions and slipped away quietly because he knew it was not time to establish the kingdom yet. Now, right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000 miracle is the account of Jesus walking on water. The feeding of the 5,000 presents Jesus as the provider of the people's needs. His walking on the water pictures him as the protector of those who trust and obey him. Now, earlier in chapter 5, Jesus clarified his identity with the Pharisees. Now, uh, in the rest of chapter 6, he clarifies his identity with the Father to the crowds and to the disciples. So in chapter 6, verse 20 through 71, Jesus turned the discussion from physical provisions to spiritual provisions with the famous bread of life discourse. That's in chapter 6, verses 20 to verse 71. God had given manna or bread in the past, but he was giving a new type of bread now. Jesus described it as coming down from heaven and providing life for the entire world, not just the nation of Israel. The true bread is the bread that brings ultimate satisfaction. And in fact, seven times in this discourse, seven times, Jesus says that he had come down from heaven, stressing that he was God's divine gift. He was the bread of life. And there are no better verses than verses 37 to 40 of chapter 6 when it comes to Jesus' explanation of personal salvation. One author said it best this way, These are among the most profound words he ever spoke, and we cannot hope to plumb their depths completely. He explained that salvation involves both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. End quote. 
The people were having a hard time, though, with the concept of Jesus coming down from heaven. Isn't this the carpenter's son, they said? So he clarified what he meant, and then he summarized his words in verse 51. Jesus would give his body as bread so the world could live spiritually. He was referring to his coming sacrificial death. Not only had the Father given the bread, but the bread would now give himself. Then in the next few verses, verses 52 to 59 of chapter 6, Jesus moves to speaking metaphorically to help the people better understand the message more completely. And by referring to his flesh and blood, he was figuratively referring to his whole person. He was illustrating what it means to believe in him. All of Jesus' person, not just some parts, is what truly satisfies and sustains life to those who believe in him. Now, because of this discourse, verse 66 is very unique because it tells us that some stopped following Jesus. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them if they were going to leave. And then Peter steps forward. Now, I want you to notice this. I believe this is the single best confession that Peter's ever made. You know, Peter's made a lot of mistakes. I know that. He's just like us. He said a lot of things. He probably should have kept his mouth shut. But verse 68 is really special. Read it. I'm going to read it for you. Um, Verse 68 says this, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow, what a confession by Peter. However, even though they were committed to Jesus, one of those apostles would defect and betray him. Now, at the beginning of chapter 7, we learned that the Festival of Shelters was soon to begin. It was one of the holiest Jewish holidays that finds its roots in Leviticus uh, 23, I believe. It's about six months after the Passover, okay? So Jesus' brothers challenged Jesus to make himself known at this feast, but he again stated that it was not his time for that. However, the text tells us that Jesus does go to the feast later on, but he does in secrecy. This is because the religious leaders are lurking to capture him. Jesus waited until halfway through the festival before he began to teach in the temple, and Jesus again claimed that he was from heaven, re- reiterating his motives to honor the Father. Though many of the Jewish pilgrims who were there for the feast did not realize how antagonistic the religious leaders were to Jesus. It seems that the locals did. They remembered. They were amazed that Jesus was speaking publicly without the authorities opposing him. However, the authorities do show up, and they show up quickly and try to capture Jesus, but are unsuccessful. And on the last day of the feast, Jesus claims that he is the source of living water, and he promised that the Holy Spirit would empower believers for the work of evangelism. And John adds some important info there. He says the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet filled his mission on the earth. On the day of Pentecost, he would send his Spirit. Again, there was divided opinion as to the identity of Jesus and his origin, and though some wanted to seize him, They were reluctant to do so, especially in front of all the people. Nicodemus shows up again. He steps forward and risks his own reputation by urging a hearing before any drastic actions would take place by the religious leaders. Now, the next event is the woman caught in adultery. And for reasons that I won't bore you with, some translations of Scripture do not include John 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Most ancient Greek manuscripts dating before the 6th century do not contain it. And none of the church fathers or early commentators refer to it in their comments on the Gospels. Some preachers and teachers take it to the extent where they don't even teach from it because they don't believe it's inspired. However, I view it as inspired for reasons that I don't have time to discuss. But understand this, that if you go fast forward into the end of the book of John, chapter 21, verse 25, it tells us that Jesus did many other things that the gospel writers did not record. So this may have been one of those things. Anyway, the point of the story of the woman taken into adultery is to illustrate the sinfulness of the Jewish leaders. And if if you've read this passage, the question that is most often asked is, what did Jesus write on the ground with his finger? 
Well, unfortunately, it doesn't say. And it seems that the text doesn't focus on it either because it's the words of Jesus that convict the religious leaders, not what he writes on the ground. And this incident is further proof that Jesus was more righteous and much wiser than the Jewish religious leaders who sought to kill him. It is also another demonstration of his patience and his grace with sinners. Now, the remainder of chapter 8, verses 12 through 58, or excuse me, 12 through 59, is the light of the world discourse. And this is the second I am statement of Jesus. Earlier, he said, I am the bread of life. Now he says, I am the light of the world. And the Jews considered the Old Testament and their traditions as authoritative revelation or the true light. But now Jesus challenged that authority by claiming to be the true final and full revelation from God, the true light. Jesus continued to explain his relationship with the Father and that he was going to follow God's plan. But the religious leaders could not comprehend him, claiming that he was possessed by a demon. However, when Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am, the Jews understood quite clearly that he was claiming to be God. Chapter 9 begins with Jesus' healing of the blind man. Once again, the religious leaders are causing problems because Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. The religious leaders were even announcing that if someone believed in Jesus, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. And so they approached the man who had been healed. Then the religious leaders went to the blind man's parents to see about the miracle. And then the religious leaders went back to the blind man again. But as the religious leaders come to the blind man for a second time, he sets them straight. And it's really, really powerful. The religious leaders get frustrated with the blind man and they end up throwing him out of the synagogue. Later on, Jesus finds this blind man and asks him if he believes in Jesus as the Son of God. The man says yes. Then Jesus makes a kind of ironic comment in verse 39. Listen to what it says. I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. While some Pharisees were standing by and they heard Jesus' words. Coincidence? I think not. Jesus made sure that the Pharisees were in earshot to hear his words because his words were actually condemning to them. Now, the very next chapter is a contrast between the good shepherd and the false shepherds. The use of shepherd imagery for Jewish leaders has its roots in the Old Testament. In chapter 10 here, the opening narrative of this chapter realizes, or excuse me, utilizes a typical day in the life of a shepherd who leads his sheep from the fold to the open pasture and then back into the fold again at night. Jesus is the true shepherd in contrast to the false shepherds. A true shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep will know him. Sheep will follow only a voice they recognize. And this points to the fact that true believers will follow Jesus because they recognize and obey uh, his voice found in his word. And when Jesus makes the claim that he and the Father are one in verse 30, the Jews attempt to stone him for what they thought was blasphemy. But you know what happens? Jesus appeals to the Old Testament again to defend himself. And in the end, this chapter, like the previous ones, record a mixed response of belief in Jesus on the part of some who reject and some who accept. Now we come to chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus, and it shows that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The fact that Lazarus had been dead for four days is significant, since early rabbinic sources suggest the Jews believed that the soul hovered near the body uh, of the deceased for three days. Now the miracle illustrated Jesus' ability to empower people with new life. He had previously raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7:15 and Jairus' daughter in, in Mark 5:42 back to life, but Lazarus had been dead for a total of four days. There could now be no doubt about Jesus' ability to raise the dead. The raising of Lazarus resulted in some people believing in Jesus and others rejecting him. But the religious leaders think it's best just to get rid of him. 
In contrast to the hatred that the religious leaders manifested stands the love that Mary demonstrated towards Jesus. Her act of sacrificial devotion is a model for all true disciples. Now, once we get to chapter 12, verse 12, we come to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We start the Passion Narratives. The raising of Lazarus was a miracle that very many people regarded as a sign that Jesus was the Messiah, yet many other people did not believe. The Pharisees looked on in unbelief, frustrated by Jesus' popularity and unable to do anything to stop him at the moment. Hyperbolically, they said the whole world had gone after Jesus. This is another ironic comment that John recorded. As the crowds gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, some Greeks who had come to worship wanted to see Jesus, and the approach of the Gentiles signaled the coming of the hour when Jesus would lay down his life. Jesus' illustration of a kernel of wheat falling to the ground taught that his death was necessary for many people to be saved. And at that moment, God the Father spoke from heaven, look at verse 28, authenticating the plan of Jesus' death. But even after all the miraculous signs and wonders, verse 37 tells us that most of the people still did not believe in him. And John follows us up by saying that this is what Isaiah the prophet had predicted long ago. Jesus then reaffirmed the purpose for his coming. He did not come to judge the world, but to be the light of the world and to save it. He came to represent his father in what he said in order to give eternal life to those who would believe. Now, chapters 13 through 17, in a large perspective, we commonly call these chapters the Upper Room Discourse. The purpose of the Upper Room Discourse was to give instruction to the disciples in order to prepare them for Christ's absence. By washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus demonstrates humility and service, as well as the need for daily cleansing of his followers so they can be used effectively. But then Jesus announces that one of them was to be unclean. One would betray Jesus, and Jesus identified him clearly at the table. How ironic! In genuine love and humility, Jesus served Judas. He washed his feet, knowing full well what he was about to do. Judas' departure opened the way for Jesus to prepare his true disciples for what lay ahead of them. This teaching was was for committed disciples only, and so in anticipation of his departure, Jesus gave the new commandment by which the world would know his disciples, loving one another. Although this was a theme that echoed from the Old Testament in Leviticus 19 verse 18, it was made new by Jesus' example, who became the model for his disciples. Their love for one another should match his love for them. And in response to this, Peter's pledge that he would lay down his life for Christ, Jesus corrected him by predicting his three denials. And this is another example of the irony in John's gospel. It would not be Peter who would die for Jesus, but Jesus who would die for Peter. Now, chapter 14 is centered around some questions by the disciples, four questions specifically. And I think we're going to have to finish, uh, not get to chapter 15, but just finish up chapter 14 here. Each of these questions were asked by a different disciple. First, Peter asked Jesus where Jesus was going and why he couldn't follow. Jesus answered Peter with a promise that he would come again to get them. Thomas questioned Jesus about the way. Jesus answered Thomas by affirming that he is the way, the truth, and the life. God has no other path of salvation besides what he has provided in his son. Philip asked to be shown the Father. Jesus stated that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. Judas, not Iscariot, asked Jesus why he revealed himself to the disciples and not to the world. Judas and his fellow disciples failed to realize that Jesus would reveal himself to them privately after his resurrection before he revealed himself publicly at his second coming. Now, we'll have to wait till next week because we're already over time to get to chapter 15. I feel like I've passed over so much material that deserved so much more time and so much more comment. The book of John is full 
of stuff about our Savior. Um, the book of John is clearly a favorite of gospel, clearly a favorite gospel among all the four that are written. And from what we've briefly gone over in this podcast, you can probably see why. So next week we'll pick up with chapter 15. Email any questions you have to Bible reading LNBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.